Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 20, beginning at verse 9. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to some tenant farmers, and went away on a journey for a long time. When it was the right time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect his share of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenant farmers beat the servant and sent him away empty-handed. The man went ahead and sent yet another servant, but they also beat him, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. He then sent a third. They also wounded him and threw him out. The owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. When the tenant farmers saw him, they talked it over with one another. They said, This is the heir, let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenant farmers and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, May it never be. But he looked at them and said, Then what about this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush the one on whom it falls. The very hour the chief priests and the experts in the law began looking for a way to lay hands on him, because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. This is the gospel of our Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who is the rock that the builders rejected, but now has become the cornerstone. Many of today's most popular TV shows are those that invite audience participation. Whether it be sports, where slow motion replays will encourage you to scream at your TV with what the right call should be, or the myriad of of reality TV shows where you have the power to decide who stays and who goes. Most of those reality TV shows feature people of questionable talent doing things of questionable value, but it seems like people enjoy that sense of power that comes with being able to judge. Well, if you like that feeling of power that comes with judging, then it's good you're here this morning because this Sunday, the fifth Sunday Lent, has traditionally been known as Judica Sunday, Judgment Sunday. And today Jesus invites us to be the judge. It's Tuesday of Holy Week. Tuesday of Holy Week I would compare to uh, Media Day. You know, the week before the Super Bowl there's Media Day where all the players crowd in and they're, they're interviewed, they ask questions and, and things like that. Well, Jesus is in the temple courts in Jerusalem and, and he's talking with both friend and foe. He's being challenged. He's asking questions, he's being asked questions, he's, he's teaching the people. Now, the Jewish establishment, the Jewish leaders do not like this. They question by whose authority he is teaching the people. They thought they were the ones, the only ones who had that authority. So Jesus responds with the parable that we just read. I don't think the, the earthly side of the parable is too difficult to understand, is it? Uh, uh, A man plants a vineyard and then he leases it out. He gives it to farmers to take care of and then he expects fully, rightly, to receive some fruit from the vineyard. But when he sends three of his servants, 
Well, they don't provide the fruit. They reject them, and, and they actually get worse in how they treat these servants. The last one, the, the Greek word uh, means that they peeled the skin off of. So it could be they whipped him or, or just beat him terribly. So the owner sends his son. And what do they do with his son? Well, they kill him. So I don't think the earthly side of that is, is too difficult to understand. That's pretty straightforward. But the key to properly interpreting a parable is being able to correctly identify the characters and the details. Fortunately, we don't have to speculate here as to who the characters are. Luke tells us that the chief priests and the experts in the law knew Jesus was telling this about them. He wasn't telling it to them necessarily, but about them. He's teaching the people about what the chief priests and leaders were about to do to him. So God is the owner. He's the one who planted the vineyard, planted Israel in the promised land. The chief priests and the experts in the law are the farmers. The people of Israel are the vineyard itself. And the servants, well, they're the prophets that God sent throughout the Old Testament. And the the son, that couldn't be easier, right? The same phrase that God used at Jesus' baptism, this is my son whom I love, identifies the son clearly as Jesus. It's unbelievable what they do with these servants, right? It's unbelievable what they do with the son of God, the son of God whom he loved, that they would treat them so shamefully. It would be quite a scene there as Jesus is standing and teaching the people and I picture the, the leaders, the Jewish leaders, kind of in the back of the audience. And I picture Jesus looking right at them and telling them that he knows what they are going to do to him in just a couple of days. The suspense must have been so thick you could cut it. Crazy to think of that scene. So how do you judge these Jewish leaders who rejected and mistreated the prophets that God sent throughout the Old Testament? And then when God sent his own son to them, they threw him in the trash. They mounted him on a cross on Calvary. I guess it's not really fair to ask you to judge these leaders of the Jews quite yet until you judge the Lord of the church. Specifically, what kind of fruit did the owner hope to get from the vineyard? What kind of fruit did God send prophet after prophet after prophet in the Old Testament to gather? What did Jesus himself come to gather? What does God continue to call men to gather from congregations like Risen Savior today? I think answering that question is the crux of this parable. Without understanding what kind of fruit the owner was looking for, I don't think you can properly understand it. Did God send Old Testament prophets to inspire the people to offer more sacrifices and more burnt offerings? Well, there were certainly plenty of sacrifices and burnt offerings, plenty of ritual taking place throughout the entire Old Testament, but God, through a prophet like Hosea, said this, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Did Jesus come to this earth to... I don't know, gather an offering of money from the Israelite people? I don't recall a single time that Jesus ever gathered an offering. 
What about today? Why does God send out pastors today? Is it to lead to behavioral modification? Is it to, to take bad people and make them good and take good people and make them better? Is that why God sends pastors today? Is that the fruit that he wants to be gathered? Well, if that were true, then I really don't think that the prophets or Jesus or pastors, faithful pastors today, would ever be persecuted. People like the idea that they can become better, that they can make themselves right in the eyes of God. Just witness the fact that some of the biggest megachurches and some of the most famous megapastors in the world do exactly that. They will send people away with to-do lists, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, telling them how they can become better, how they can change their lives, how they can become right in the eyes of God. Or, or just consider every single other religion teaches this kind of works-based, law-based righteousness before God. That it's up to you to make yourself right with God if there is a God. Um, yesterday or the day before Ramadan started, uh, the Islamic holy month, and I was listening to NPR on the way into church this morning, and, and even the, the interviewer on NPR was praising this idea Wow, for a whole month you fast until the sun goes down? You, you pray diligently five times a day? You do all of these things to, to gain Allah's favor? I don't think they would say the same thing about Christianity on NPR. So what kind of fruit was God looking for? Through his prophets, through his son, through pastors today. Well, what is the only fruit that sinners can produce? Sin. Sin is the only fruit that sinners can produce. produce. And if you look back at the Old Testament, what the prophets came preaching, every single one of them said, repent and be forgiven. Trust in God, not yourselves, not your works, not your burnt offerings for the forgiveness of sins. Trust in God. Jesus came with the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Hand your sins over. Faithful preachers today, you should demand and expect that they do not come to you giving you a 10-step to-do list to make yourself right with God, but rather to expose your sin and encourage you to, to hand them over to Jesus to be taken away. That's the only real good news that there is. That's the only real fruit that people like you, sinners like you and I, can produce is our sin. Nothing else is good enough. And Jesus came to take away our sin. Now it might seem strange, maybe kind of anti-Christian, to ask you to judge these Jewish leaders, this Jewish establishment. You might think, I thought the Bible said do not judge. But it's inter interesting, if you go back to a parallel section in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5, this is what the Lord says. He says, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard that I have not already done for it? He gave the vineyard away for free. He gave the, the farmers, the Jewish leaders, their role, their position, their authority, his word. And all he was looking for was, would be that they led the people to repentance, that they would bear the fruit of repentance, that they would hand their sins over to be forgiven and he didn't just send one or two prophets. 
But rather, Jeremiah says, From the time your fathers left Egypt until today, I have sent all my servants, the prophets, to them again and again. What more could God have done? Well, there is one more thing. It's the greatest thing. When they rejected prophet after prophet after prophet, God came up with what sounds to us like a cockamamie scheme to send his son. Imagine sending your child to a people who are infamous for violence and lashing out in anger. Can you imagine sending your child to Ukraine today or Iran or North Korea? And yet that's exactly what God did. God knew how they had treated his servants, the prophets, and yet he said, what should I do? I'll send my beloved son. Maybe they will respect him. That's outrageous, isn't it? That's how outrageously God loves us, that he would send his son knowing that they would beat him, that they would crucify him and kill him. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come to gather up our good works because we don't really have any. He come to get, came to gather up our sin. He came to reap the only fruit that we can produce, which is our sins. Not just the little white ones. Not the little white lies you told. Not that one time you accidentally blew through a stop sign or the time you lost your temper. No, the real deep black ones. The ones that keep you up at night. The ones that you won't tell anyone else about. The ones that you wish you didn't have to remember. Those are the sins that Jesus came to gather up and take with him to the cross where he could remove them once and for all. Is that how we always judge Jesus? That what he wants from us most of all is not our pity. It's not the... the, feeble good works that we can produce in our lives, because honestly, how many good things do we actually do with the right motivation? But that he came, and what he wants from us is our sin. He wants heartfelt repentance. Or do we still think, we still cling to that self-righteousness that is, is inside each one of us when we're born? That we can do something to please God. That we can make everything right. That we may not be perfect, but we're getting better. Do we still cling to that self-righteousness? I think it comes out in several ways. We maybe think that our offerings, our time and talent and energy that that we contribute to God and the church, even, even our attendance here in worship, that we're doing something for God, which is totally backwards. We're not here to give God something. What does He need from us? Does he need our our feeble praises? Does he need the few dollars that we put in the offering plate? Paul says, who has ever given anything to God that God would need anything from us? That's self-righteousness. That's totally backwards. The reason we're here is not to do something for God, but to receive what only God can give to us, the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. But if we are still stuck in that self-righteous mindset, it's totally understandable why you would think coming to church is such a burden. Why you would think, nah, there's no reason for me to come to church on Wednesdays in Lent. I I come on Sundays. If you're still stuck in the self-righteous mentality, then I totally understand why you would be tempted to blow off our special 
Holy Week services. Because you view coming to worship, coming into Jesus' presence as something you're doing for Him, as a burden, as something you owe Him. When that's not right at all. When the reason we come here is for Jesus to take our sins away from us. People didn't understand it. So Jesus continues with the parable and he he works out the logical conclusion. What's the owner going to do when he hears that they've killed his son? Well, of course, he's going to kill those tenant farmers and he's going to give the, the vineyard to someone else. Shocking and appalling, isn't it? No, not the owner's behavior. He's totally justified in doing that. What's so shocking and appalling is the people's response. They say, may it never be. This is one of the strongest formulas for an oath in Greek. God forbid that should ever happen. Is what the people said. Understand what Jesus is telling them. God loves you so much that he's going to come and destroy those Jewish leaders who have just been slave masters in your lives, who have been telling you, you have to make yourself right with God, which is totally undoable for anyone. And Jesus is saying, God is going to take them away. God is going to free you from their slavery, from slavery to the law. And the people don't want it. Luke says that Jesus looked at them. English doesn't convey all the emotion that's contained in that word. This word for look, it's the same word that was used when Jesus looked at the rich young man and he loved him. It's the same word for look that when Jesus was being marched uh, to his trial, that he looked at Peter after Peter had denied knowing him three times. There is a lot contained in this look. He loved them. He pitied them. They were like slaves who preferred to remain in their slavery rather than be set free. You can only pity someone like that. So he tries one more time. He goes back to the Old Testament and says, listen, this is what's really happening here. This is what's going to happen on Friday. Quotes Psalm 118 and he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he adds his own interpretation. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush the one on whom it falls. There's a Jewish proverb from what's called the Mishnah that goes this way. If the pot falls on the stone, woe to the pot. If the stone falls on the pot, woe to the pot. Either way, woe to the pot. What Jesus is saying here is that everything centers on him. He is the cornerstone. You will either be by the law that is preached in his name and brought to repentance and hand over your sins to him, or you will be crushed by him on judgment day. But either way, everything is determined by our relationship to Jesus. Whether we think that he came to get our good works, that he came to get the fruit of our best efforts and our time and our energy, or whether we properly understand that what Jesus came to do was to lift the burden of sin off of our shoulders. So you be the judge. You be the judge of these Jewish leaders and how wickedly they treated the prophets and Jesus. You be the judge of the Lord of the church. Whether you think it's right that he would come to you and say, listen, the only thing that you can give to me is your sin." I know it sounds like the, the most offensive thing in the world to say that the only thing that we can offer with all of our best efforts, with all of our best intentions, 
The only thing that we can really offer to God is our sin. Many people are offended by it. There are those that think it's not the church's or the pastor's business to be re, re, uh, rebuking and exposing sin. There are people who say that the church's business should be not changing hearts, but changing the world. There are those who still have that self-righteous streak in them. There are people like that in every church. Oh, they may be active, they may be the most faithful members, they may be the most diligent in worship, but they still maintain that self-righteous streak that says, I can do something good for God. I can help earn my way to heaven. Jesus reveals a reality in this parable that the only fruit that we can actually call our own, that we can give to God, is our sin. So you be the judge. Whether you are willing to receive Jesus as your Savior or continue to view him as a slave master. You have to be the judge today. May God grant us a wisdom to judge correctly. Amen.